0: As we continue on our journey through the great tribulation period, we find ourselves today introduced to the two beasts, and these beasts are unlike any beast that you've ever seen before. Um, But as we arrive at these two beasts, I want to remind you of the context from last year's, excuse me, last week, some weeks feel like a year, don't they? Last week, we looked at the cosmic battle that's been raging ever since the fall. That Satan has rebelled against God, and in order to stop God's rescue plan, he's doing all that he can to hurt the people and stop the plans of God. And yet where we land all the time is that nothing can separate us from the love of God who has been poured out through Christ Jesus And so we know that the battle's already been won, and yet God gives us this insight. It's like he peels back the curtain to show us what's going on spiritually in the heavenlies. And that thing that's going on uh, reveals this woman who we have figured out to be the nation of Israel in in Revelation 12, 2. And this woman, once Satan is cast out of heaven, uh, he's cast down to the earth and he's in the earth and the sea, and he plagues the earth and the sea, and he even persecutes the people of God. Now, I said last week that it was just the nation of Israel, but I forgot to say that it's also the tribulation saints. Remember uh, that the saints in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation are actually taken up into heaven, but there's also people that get saved because God's not just throwing away humanity and going, I'm done. He's still reaching out his kind and gentle arms going, hey, your world is failing you, the economic system is failing you, famine, food is even failing you, and yet I am not forsaking you if you're willing. Whosoever will may come, repent of their sin, believe in my son, and follow me. The tribulation saints, people that are saved during this period, will actually have the opportunity to walk with the Lord, and yet we find out is that if you're going to walk with God, this will be an unparalleled time where It's going to be the hardest it's ever been. If you're going to walk with Jesus during the tribulation period, you're going to be hardcore. It will be soldiering. And so during this time, uh, the people of God, the nation of Israel, are going to flee to this place that's called Petra. And if you look at Matthew chapter 24, Jesus refers to this place. Matthew chapter 24 in verse 15 Speaking of the great tribulation, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is now, flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not... Go back to get any clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, remembering that the flood happened from the beginning of the world till this time. So it'll be unparalleled, it'll be unlike, it'll be worse than the worldwide flood, which is saying something. And then he says, Nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then, if anyone says to you, Look, there's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. And so there will be deception, there will be persecution. And Jesus says to those who are faithful to God at this time, they will actually be, uh, they will have to flee. And this place of fleeing is also spoken about in Isaiah chapter 16, verse 1 through 4. It's a place called Selah, not Selah like in the Psalms, which means to pause and take a moment and think about what God's done. But Selah actually refers to a place called Petra, which is in Jordan, modern-day Jordan, and looks like this if I can get the next slide, there it is. It's this hidden city called Petra. What's interesting about this city is that the only way to get there, unless you have some sort of helicopter, is to flee through these wadis. It's like a maze in there. And you go through these, you know, we have uh, elephant rocks and they got the fat man squeeze It's kind of like that. You can't just take any old vehicle in there. You can't take buses in there. They're going to have to flee on foot and get into this place that God has prepared for them to flee and be protected. And it says in Revelation chapter 12 that they'll flee there and they'll be sustained there. And so as they flee there and they're sustained there, remember last week we talked about how Satan the dragon will actually send a flood. He'll spew out water towards them in order to defeat them, which is funny because dragons, what comes out of their mouth? Uh, Fire, not water. But there will be a flood, and many believe that this will actually be an army that will go in there to defeat them. And the only way to go in there is to go through all these little crevices and cracks. and, and, And what's funny about this is they have no defense. They go to this place, but essentially they're sitting ducks in this little bowl so how are, they going to defeat them? how are they going to defeat their enemies if they flee there, especially if they have pregnant women with them? It'll be men, women, and children hiding in this place. And yet what we read in Revelation 12 is that in order to defeat this flood, the God of creation is going to open creation and swallow their enemies. The only way to be protected is for God to do it supernaturally. And he opens the earth and they are sucked in. And I love this because there is no length that God won't go to to protect his people. And so at the same time, we see the male child described in chapter 12, verse 5. He will rule all nations with a rod of iron. This also refers back to Psalm chapter 2. And then he ascended or was caught up to God and his throne, which we looked at, the only person that this could be is Jesus Christ himself. Uh, he was, appeared after his death, burial, and then he ro- rose from the dead and he appeared to people for 40 days, and then ascended to heaven, and then he sent down the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, which we just looked at uh, last week on Sunday. And then there's the dragon, Satan, uh, the great serpent of old described in Revelation 12, and he is the devil. He's been cast out of heaven to earth. He's persecuting the Israelite people and the tribulation saints. So that's where we ended last week. It actually says in verse 17, and the dragon after his plan to destroy the faithful people of God, he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. He was stopped from doing what he planned to do. And at that point, he's in a rage. And he says, no big deal. I'll go make war with the rest of her offspring, this woman, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So they have the law, but they also believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. I'll go deal with them. I'll go rage war against them. And so, to be a believer of any sort in the tribulation period means persecution. And so, with that being said, this week, we are going to look at something that I call the unholy trinity. We have the dragon, chapter 12, Satan, who is a picture of, an anti-type of, think about it, we have the, the holy trinity. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet, Satan is known in the Bible as the father of lies. And then there's the first beast introduced in chapter 13, verse 1 through 8, who is the Antichrist. It's going to describe him as a beast. Is he going to look like a beast? We'll get that into that in a minute. But Antichrist doesn't just mean he's against Christ. The word in the Greek actually means instead of Christ. He will be a false messiah. He'll look like the right guy. He'll he'll measure up to all the standards that they had for the Messiah when they rejected the first one who was meek and riding on a donkey. They're looking for a conquering Messiah, and this guy will measure up to all that. He will be the perfect politician. He'll be the perfect peacemaker. People will laud him. He'll have 100 million followers on on the the book of faith and on Twitter, and, and he'll be it. People will love him. He will not come like a guy with a pitchfork. He won't be an actual beast that you're like, oh, that's obviously a bad guy. He'll come as a angel of light. What it says of him in verse 1 and 2 is that he'll actually come out of the sea. What that means is that in Scripture, prophetically, the sea is always a picture of the world. The world's covered in 70% water. The sea kind of covers most of it. And when he comes out of the sea, he'll come out of a Gentile nation. Many believe he'll actually be a descendant of David. He'll actually be a Jewish man, which would fulfill prophecy describing the Messiah. But he'll come out of the sea. He'll come out, he'll, he'll come out of the dispersion. As the Jewish people have been dispersed throughout the whole world, he'll actually come out of the world, but he'll be a Jewish male. And then it describes him. Seven heads, ten horns. 10 crowns. And Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 9 also describe the, the kingdoms of the world. And as they progress, they're always described as these beasts. But we know that the kingdoms of the world haven't actually been run by beasts that you'd see in a zoo. They're actually run by people, but they're described as beasts because of the characteristics of those kingdoms and what they'll do with their power. One's described as a panther, excuse me, a leopard and a bear. And, and they have these gnashing teeth, and the bear is kind of a lumbering country, uh, kind of, you know, comes around and knocks things over and, and does what it does and conquers other kingdoms. But we studied that in the book of Daniel. But on top of the, the they have seven heads, which I believe to be seven leaders. It, then this, this beast will have ten horns, which are ten nations. Many believe that this will actually be a resurrected form of the Roman Uh, empire that will kind of come up out of europe and they'll have 10 crowns but out of those 10 crowns will come one man who rises up above them and he'll have this supernatural influence but on their crowns they'll have a blasphemous name on their heads uh, meaning that their leadership and their government are against god and they will mock him openly they'll have leadership that is openly against god and, and we're set up right now for most nations are actually run by the ungodly. And because of that, uh, they will speak proud words. So the first beast is the Antichrist. He is instead of Christ. He will come on the scene and he'll do some things we're getting ready to look at. But the second beast, chapter 13, verse 11 through 18, will be a false prophet, which is a type of the Holy Spirit, except he'll be the anti-Holy Spirit. Instead of the Holy Spirit, you'll have this prophet, and he will come out of the earth, meaning in Scripture, instead of coming out of the world, the Gentile nations, he'll actually be risen up out of the land, and that will be the land of Israel. And so with that outline, we'll start uh, chapter 13. Now my question for you, as we talk about the word beasts, and i already mentioned this about the previous kingdoms these things that we're describing are all figurative language that john would understand in order to point out what these nations will be like and or excuse me what these these uh, these two beasts will be like they will be human beings they will be supernaturally gifted by satan and they will fulfill their role just like if we were to look at judas and see what he ultimately did being one of the chosen 12 he Was against Jesus. That's pretty beastly. To be against the the king of the earth, the savior of the world, and to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, that's very, maybe we would say in a more English tone, very beastly, very uh, unkind, very rough, very rabid. It's not safe, is the idea. And so the question is are there going to be literal beasts? Now the Bible describes these characters, think about this, from God's viewpoint. They're like ravenous beasts seeking whom they may devour. You wouldn't want to leave them alone with your children locked in a house. So the idea is these will be men who play two roles. And what's interesting is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says that Satan comes to us and presents himself as an angel of light. They'll present themselves as these upstanding citizens and they will be lauded by the crowds. But Satan, 1 Peter 5.8 says, is really a roaring lion. He's roaming about, sinking who he may devour with his teeth. Now, God has a divine redemption plan in the works, so Satan makes sense. If we have strategy for how we're going to save somebody, there's also going to be a counterpart that has a demonic destruction plan to counter what God's going to do, and he'll use people that are willing to play these ungodly roles. And so the God-rejecting thinkers and leaders of the world will be susceptible to play this role, right? And so these two that rise above, they'll be the cream of the crop. They'll be the most educated people in the world. They'll be very flowery with their language, and yet Satan will use them to try to overthrow God's plan. So here we are. Chapter 13, verse 1 it says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So Jesus says, I came to do the will of my Father. And everybody said, nobody can do the things that Jesus did unless he had been given authority from above. And so this man will come on the scene, and it says there very clearly in verse 2, the dragon from the previous chapter, Satan, gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. So we have in Daniel chapter 4 through 6 and then 7, We have the foretelling of the kingdoms of the earth and we look at those kingdoms and they describe very specifically, before they even took place, the nations that were ruling the world, starting with Babylon, leading to the Medes and the Persians, leading to Alexander the Great with the Grecian Empire and then the Romans, and all of these are described very clearly in scripture, foretold because God sees all things outside of time. He tells us ahead of time what it'll look like and prophecy is always to bolster our faith. Not that that was God's will that all these ungodly nations would rule, but so we would see that God knows how the the earth is going to unfold and he sees ahead of time. So if he's been faithful in the past and he can tell us about the past before it happens from the past, he can also tell us and see and show us our future and our hope. And so but there's one described in chapter 7 all of these are under Satan's authority all of these have historically dominated Israel and kept them oppressed but there's one beast described specifically that's unlike any other beast one he uses the word a leper leopard one he uses the word bear and very lumbering but then he describes this one beast that could actually look like the one on the right there that has all these heads all these horns It's a beast unlike we've ever seen. I actually Googled it, and artists artists will try to draw these specific beasts. But what's interesting about the fourth one is that some people actually drew a dinosaur, and some people drew a dragon, and some people... But all that said, there was many of the same descriptions in there, but nobody knows what it's going to look like because it's a beast, unlike it's indescribable from what we understand, telling you that it's not just any other beast, but it's a otherworldly type of beast. But this beast that we're looking at in the Antichrist, this beast kingdom will be a continuation of these other kingdoms of the world. There'll be a revived piece of the Roman Empire that was in chapter 7. But then what I want to point out is that Satan has always had authority on this earth, and we talked about this earlier in Revelation. Who gave him authority? We did. Adam, the first of Adam, our head. He gave up his authority to be a manager and a multiplier on the earth when he sinned and obeyed Satan instead of God. He gave the right to rule and reign on earth to Satan. And so when he did this, he set us on a destruction course from the beginning. But what we know is that even Jesus didn't question this authority. He was tempted by Satan in the in uh, Actually, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 through 10, he was tempted specifically. Satan, the god of this world, took him up to the highest peak of a mountain. We don't know where it was, but he took him there supernaturally after he'd fasted 40 days. And he said, if you'll bow down and worship me, Jesus, then I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. I'll, give you, I'll make you the authority over them. And Jesus didn't say, you can't do that you don't have the right to do that. My father's in charge. What he said was, you shall worship the Lord God and him only. He quoted Deuteronomy. And then he said, department from me, Satan. So at that point, he was rejecting the right to rule and reign the earth that he was already going to be given the right of. Jesus did not worship Satan and take the bait. He was the second Adam. He didn't, he didn't fall to the temptation like Adam did. He rejected it. But at the same time, Satan's still dangling that carrot, and there will be an individual that will take it and eat it, and he will play right into the part that Satan has for him. Many people are already and would love to take over the world. Napoleon, right? Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Hitler, it's, it's always been something the most evil people will try to take over the world. It is demonically charged when people do that. So that being said, Jesus said, no, I'll take it later when my father gives it to me. And so in verse three, he continues on and says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed this beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So Antichrist comes on the scene. Everybody loves him. And then there's an assassination attempt or something like it. Something happens that he's actually mortally wounded, that he should die. And yet what happens Zechariah chapter 11, verse 15 actually describes this wound. I'm going to turn there only because I put a bookmark, otherwise, I'd never find it in the next 10 minutes. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 15 says, The Lord said to me, Next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that stand still. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. He will actually destroy sheep. He won't care for them. And yet he'll act like a shepherd. Verse 17, woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against him and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally So he's going to take a death blow to his eye, his shoulder, and I guess his arm because of it, and he'll be mutilated. But what we read in chapter 13, verse 3, is that he had been mortally wounded, and yet his deadly wound was healed. And all the world saw this, and they marveled, and they followed him. Imagine that someone that's Messiah-like, is going to perform a sign. And what, it, what happened? Everybody came to Jesus and they said what? Uh, show us a sign and then we'll follow you. And he had showed them all these wonders and signs. And yet what did he say to them? He said, a wicked and perverse generation seeks a sign. There will come a generation when the Antichrist gets here that will seek a sign. They will be a wicked." and perverse twisted generation and they will see that sign and they'll go i'm in let's do this they'll say amen so what happens is with the authority given to him he has the ability to heal himself and they worship verse 4 the dragon who gave authority to the beast they worship the beast saying who is like the beast and who was able to make war with him this will be a counterfeit savior Jesus was mortally wounded, and he rose from the dead, and the world continued to reject him. This man, empowered by Satan, convinces the world to worship Satan. So they don't worship the Antichrist, they actually worship the one who sent him, because he came to do the will of his father, the father of lies. They're going to worship, guess what? Just like Oprah, a higher power. They're going to worship someone that can do things that they can't, and yet, A wicked and perverse generation. So, if your faith is based on God doing a miraculous sign, if He heals every time, you're going to be susceptible to this kind of deception because this guy, Satan, is going to do a sign through the Antichrist and people will wholesale follow Him to the gates of hell and then to the pit of hell. But verse 4 says, their worship song for the beast, their version of our God is greater, our God is higher. There's no one like the beast. And yet I don't think it's going to sound like that. They're going to say things that sound different. It's not going to be, we worship the beast. That would sound creepy and satanic. They'll say, we're going to worship this political leader. We're going to worship this healer. We're going to worship this humanitarian, whatever it might be. And so in verse 5, we continue. Verse 5 says that, As he was given a mouth, speaking great words and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for, imagine this, we haven't heard this before, 42 months, which is three and a half years. Verse 6, Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme, or mock, his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and look at this he was given the ability to overcome them to kill them and authority was given him over every tribe tongue and nation all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of the lamb life of the excuse me in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world so there's this contrast all those whose names are written in heaven They won't worship. All those whose names are not written in the book of life will worship. They'll give their allegiance over to this man. So he's given a voice. He spreads great words. He slanders God. Think of this in contrast. Jesus Christ, given a voice, only said what pleased the Father, honored God, blessed his name, spoke of his great wonder and power and might, and yet this beast is allowed to continue for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. He blasphemes God, his name, which is his character, and he blasphemes the tabernacle. And the question is, it sounds to me like a political race. I mean, that's not a question. My statement is, this sounds like a political race. Think about the last few times we've had these debates, even amongst people that like are in the same camp. I mean, look at some of the debates we've had. It's mocking. They just get up there and destroy each other's character. There's no politeness. There's not even a thought about it. They just mock them. And yet this man will get up and he will speak great, pompous, blaspheming words to destroy or attempt to destroy the character and the testimony of who God is. He's going to make war with the faithful, the tribulation saints, the 144,000 that are still on the earth, and he overcomes and he kills them. Any of his opponents, his allies, those who truly know God, he'll wipe them off the scene. He's trying to get people to forget that God created the universe. He's trying to get people to forget that God is the one who gives the sun and the rain and the moon and the stars. He is the one behind it all, not anyone else. Everything about what you and I live in right now is trying to erase the memory Of God, our Creator. They're trying to destroy the character. They're trying to mock Him. They'll say that God doesn't really love you. He's trying to put you under His thumb so He can run your life and take away all the things that you like to do. That's what Satan whispers. But what Satan whispers is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus came to set us free, He came to show us the Father. He came to not. Give us another set of rules of laws. He actually simplified it. He said, if you want to fulfill the law and the prophets, love God first and foremost. Make him your priority. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. He doesn't force anyone to follow him. And What we're going to find is that Satan will force us. He'll hem us in. He'll entangle us. He'll enslave us. So we've got no choice but to follow him. So only the people of the world will worship this man as God. Their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And this Lamb's Book of Life is spoken of in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. We'll see it again in Revelation 21, 27. But what's funny is you read about these kingdoms, and as you see the unfurling of the very fabric of society in the world, and you see more chaos and destruction and hatred and crime I love what happens at the end of this description. Daniel chapter eight, verse 18. It says, as he was speaking of me, speaking with me, Daniel says, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and he stood me upright. And he said, look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. The ram which you saw having two horns, which we'll see described in the second part of this chapter. They are the kings of Media and Persia, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that's between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of that nation, but not with its power. It won't be empowered by the kingdom's power, but it will be supernaturally empowered. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty, and also the holy people. Through his cunning, He shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. Seems to me that during this time, there will be great prosperity among the nations, and yet Satan will destroy people while they're prospering. You can't imagine that, right? We only see people destroyed when they're doing unwell, financially and economically, But it says in this, they'll be fattened for slaughter, essentially. We get fat and sassy and comfortable, all of a sudden we're in a dangerous spot. And yet, what it says is, He shall exalt himself, he shall destroy many in their prosperity, he shall even rise against the prince of princes. We know him. But he shall, verse 25, at the very end, he shall be broken without human means. He will be destroyed. This man we just read about, the Antichrist, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. When he is destroyed, we won't have to come up with a scheme to protect ourselves. Jesus Christ will destroy him. He will be destroyed, not by human means. Meaning God himself will fight and ultimately let justice reign. And so, verse 9, back in Revelation 13, if anyone has an ear let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So a brief statement in the midst of this. He's he says here's the antichrist, the second beast, or really the first beast after Satan's described in chapter 12, and then he says this interesting thing. He says if anyone has an ear let him hear. Now in chapter two and three, as we looked as the church before it was taken into heaven, it says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And now it says, if you have an ear, let him hear. There is no church anymore. The church age is over. There are the faithful, but anyone who's willing to listen, let him hear. And we're told this ahead of time. He's calling out, heed this warning. Anyone who hears this, what I'm saying in Revelation 13, he says, hear this before the time arrives. Get ready, be ready, be vigilant. It's a call to arms. And I love this because wisdom, God in flesh is wisdom. But in Proverbs chapter 1, the wisdom book, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20, I went too far. Proverbs always personifies wisdom as a woman, but Proverbs chapter 1 verse 20 says wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses at the openings of the gates in the city she speaks her words, "How long you simple ones will you love simplicity?" And he's talking about foolishness and naivety. For scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. Also, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes, when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish comes upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and they despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies, for the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But, and I love this verse, but whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Whoever listens to me at Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and 25 says, He who hears my word, Jesus says this, He who hears my word and puts it into practice will be like the man that put his house and built it on a rock. So in the day of adversity, when the winds blow and the waves crash, that that foundation will stand and it will not be shaken, that house. So he says, wisdom calls out. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And then he says, to the, a warning to the violent, the evil, and a promise to the righteous. He who puts in captivity will be himself made captive. Satan will be bound. He will ultimately, he's enslaved, he will be enslaved. He will be put in a place of judgment. He who lives to kill will die in the process. He who lives to heal, however, will be healed. Think about that. Jesus, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, excuse me, Peter, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, he he sees jesus being put in captivity he goes no he gets out the sword that he was going to carry with him and he, he's such an inept swordsman he's a fisherman he, he wasn't trying to hit malchus's ear he was going for the throat and when he jumps up and he cuts off his ear with a short sword jesus says hey peter if you live by the sword what you'll die by the sword it's the same thing. Jesus, by the pen of John the Revelator here, it says, he who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. It's not our call to arms at this point Revelation, but God will ultimately be the one to bring true and righteous judgment. We wait upon, as saints, our job is to wait upon this promise and endure to please our King until He fulfills righteous judgment at the right time. And instead, while we're here seeking healing for our enemies, Jesus said, pray for your enemies, right? Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you and call you all sorts of evil for righteousness sake. He doesn't say to fight for yourselves. He says, let God fight for you. But now that that parenthetical statement is over, we have the False prophet. So Jesus comes on the scene, and then He sends His disciples, and He pours out His Holy Spirit to bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus taught in the New Testament, the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the Book of Acts. Well, when we're going to have a counterfeit Savior, we got to have a counterfeit Holy Spirit. And so here we have the false prophet, the, unho- the unholy spirit. Verse uh, eleven says, "Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke." Like a dragon? That's odd. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he has he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Verse 15, he was granted power to give them breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So if you won't worship the beast, he'll put you down. He'll put you to death like a dog. So it looks like a lamb, but speaks like hell. James chapter 3, verse 6 says, Oh, how great and powerful the tongue is. It's set on fire by hell. And yet in this case, we'll have a lamb that breathes fire from hell. But the authority that he has, again, is inspired by it, it comes from Satan, just like the Antichrist. And Jesus' authority came from the Father and the Holy Spirit, who points us to who? Jesus the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus, points us to the Father. The unholy Spirit points us to the Father of lies, points us to the Antichrist. This is why it's important to test the spirits. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 through 6 says this. John the Revelator, writing in the same token. 1 John chapter 4 says this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already at work in the world. And so we have false religions already that profess Jesus, but not as a man who came in the flesh. This is what divides us, the false from the true. So is the prophet holy or hellish? And That's what we're going to compare here. From verse 11 through 15, it says that the second beast points people to worship the dragon. The Holy Spirit on the left points us to worship Jesus. False prophets deceive. They, they want to darken things and make them less simple. The Holy Spirit shines light and enlightens us, helps us to see the truth, helps us to see ourselves for who we really are rather than clouding it, making it uh, kind of dim. Uh, the Holy Spirit performs signs, even calling down fire. Think about the day of Pentecost. Great wind happens and then a fire, a flame was upon each head and they spoke and everyone understood. The Holy Spirit did this on Pentecost, but the unholy spirit, this false prophet, performed signs calling down fire like a counterfeit would, mimicking the two prophets of God in Revelation 11. Remember the two prophets that came? They were able to use their voices to call out fire on their enemies for 42 months. Well, if you need a sign and wonder to prove you got the Messiah, Satan's going to do the same thing. Satan doesn't, by the way, come up with anything on his own. He really just perverts, he perverts what God does. He takes things that are good, like money and sex and power, and he twists them. All of those things are okay. But Satan, makes. he uses them for evil and wicked. And so in the same way, he uses this false prophet The Holy Spirit convinces people to turn from idols to God. The unholy spirit, this false prophet, convinces people to make and worship the idol. The Holy Spirit makes us alive to speak and move and live with his power. Defeating sin, having victory. The unholy spirit breathes breath, makes the idol alive to speak and move and deceive. Do you see all these discrepancies here? So verse 15 in the second half, it says, those who would not worship the image of the beast will be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And then no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast. So the mark is the name of the beast uh, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. His number is six, six, six. I believe that this is because of the unholy trinity. You could argue with me on that. But the number of man in Scripture is always six. It's incomplete. It's close, but no cigar. Not quite there. The number of God, the number of perfection in the Bible, is the number seven. Six falls short of seven, right? And so these these unholy trinity are really just a perversion, a counterfeit of what God's done. But here's what I want to point out. God says, not turn or burn he says, I love you, follow me. And we get the decision on whether or not to do that. But what Satan says is turn or be killed. Turn or, he's the one that says turn or burn. And you will burn if you turn to him. So if you don't worship the idol, here's what happens to you. If you don't worship the image, then guess what? You get killed. Daniel chapter 3 Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. They're subjected to this false worship. They're in a land of not their choosing. And Nebuchadnezzar builds this great golden image of himself, and he says, "When all the worship music plays, bow down and worship me, or I will throw you in this fiery furnace." And so the men decide, we're not going to do that. And because they won't do that, because they won't worship the image, this false image, they're thrown into a fiery furnace. heated seven times hotter than any furnace had ever been lit. And what's funny is that's called tribulation. Tribulation is what you'll be subjected to. But they don't burn. As believers, as followers of God, true followers, any time that Satan turns up the heat, <laughs> what we find is that we won't be burned in it, but instead Jesus will meet up with us in it. But in the fire, what happened to Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, in the midst of the fire, in the midst of things being burned away from their lives, sin included, and what bound them, their ropes, is they saw Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but I see Jesus more clearly when life is harder, not easier. I see Jesus more clear. I need him more when life is harder. So in the fire, they clearly see Jesus, and you and I will too. But the things that hold them captive... Are burned up by the fiery trial. I want you to think about this. Has there anything in your life in the last two months in particular, has God burned anything away in this trial? He has for me. There's been lots of idols destroyed in my life, Uh, whether it's my ability to go see my own parents or whether it's the ability to go out and eat. I mean, I was just yesterday still trying to go to stinking pizza hut to bless my family. Can't do it. There's a sign on the wall that says Corona. And it's not because they're serving it. It's because, you know, you can't go in. And so, um, but in the meantime, there's all these other things that we can do. So it's, God's just burning down idols. I'm not in control of every aspect of my life. But that being said, that if you don't worship the idol in this time, they'll kill you. And if you don't take the mark, you can't buy, sell, or trade no Amazon Prime for you. You don't have the mark of the beast. And and I don't know about you guys, but it's interesting to me. We live in a time that's unprecedented in so many ways, but like some places weren't taking cash because you could transmit disease on it. Well, you could always do that. I mean, money is the dirtiest thing you can get. Street corner, you know, whatever. <laughs> it, they, people use cash. They don't use their debit card to go, you know, down to the corner and get drugs or whatever else you can do at the street corner. And so money has always been dirty, but now it's become commonly accepted. Like we need to get rid of money. It's dirty. Can you imagine any other time that we could possibly see because of health reasons? People go, no, no, we need to have a chip in us that actually will keep us safe. And, And I think that this is all part of that setup. God's getting ready, or at least the Antichrist is getting us ready for that economic system. But interestingly enough, Daniel 3 gives us the dimensions of this golden statue. And it's all for subjection, but they were told to bow down to a statue that was 60, 60 cubits tall, six cubits wide, and six cubits thick. Might be a coincidence, I don't know. But it seems to me that that was a type of what will happen during tribulation. Now, think about the world that we live in. Without Christian influence, Things like the chip for location and for exposure to different diseases would have already been done. They would have presented it, and the whole world would go, I'll do whatever I can to save myself, except follow Jesus. But I'll I'll take a chip, I'll take a tattoo, I'll take a mark, whatever, brand me. You know, I want to be able to go places. Put it on my forehead, you know. But I've also heard people say that they think that the iPhone is that. Like, think about it. It's got the apple with the bite out of it. And it says that it'll be on your hand or on your forehead. You know, like, I don't know about that. But the whole point is, I got an iPhone. I'm just saying. I did, you know, but things are kind of, I don't think there's any coincidences either. Um, but that being said, if you don't have the chip, uh, you'll be set up for it, you know. So here's the, here's the real deal. As believers, you know where our name's written? In heaven. As non-believers, you don't get your name written anywhere. You get someone's name written on you. That's what it looks like in the tribulation. So here's Satan's game strategy. And it plays right into Jesus fulfilling and giving us victory. He knows his time is short. Chapter 12 told us that. He's making war, Satan is, on the object of God's love, his people. Satan says, I can't get my way, then I'll hurt you, God. And the only way to hurt God, by the way... Is try try to hurt his people. Satan's going to make it possible to get food, impossible to get food without bearing the name of the beast. He's going to make a counterfeit Messiah to save the people from oppression. I can't get food. Okay, well trust in this name and put it on you. You'll bear the mark. You can even either bear the mark of Jesus, be clothed in white robes, or you can bear the mark of the beast. He's going to send a counterfeit prophet to point people to the counterfeit Messiah. He'll kill those who refuse to worship the false Messiah. He'll deceive the world into worshiping him and try to erase the memory of the true king from the face of the earth. That's his plan. So basically, everything that Satan accuses God of doing, Satan actually does deceive. He, he convinced Eve, you know, God's deceiving you, he's holding back something from you that's good. He lies. He's, he's telling, hey, God's lying to you. He, he's trying to keep you from your best life. He also threatens people so they'll follow him. That's what he's doing. If you don't take my number, you don't get to eat. And yet what we find is that Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 20 as we close. Satan, in order to get authority and power, he expresses his strength. He uses it against people. He oppresses like Pharaoh did the Israelite people. And, that, and yet, Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, starting in verse uh, 25, says, Jesus called his disciples to himself and said this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, you should let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If anyone wants to be first in your life, Let them prove that they are humble by serving you. He wasn't talking about, by the way, your spouse. He wasn't talking about your kids. Jesus said, I came to save you and I want you to follow me. And then he told his disciples, let the one who wants you to follow him serve you first. And then he did it. I have there for you a picture. After he said this, he took his disciples, he fed them a meal, and then he washed them the poop off their feet. He humbled himself. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, and yet he didn't grasp for that right to rule and reign. Instead, he gave it up. He humbled himself, became a literal doormat, and then he said, I want to serve you, proving that he came to save us. And so for you this morning and for me, I want us to take a few minutes and I want us to consider the fact that we don't have an oppressor that rules over us. But we have a servant who humbled himself. He earned the right by loving us so much that he took away our sins by his own blood, not someone else's. He didn't gain authority by killing people and squashing them so he could have right to reign. He, gave, he got authority by earning it, by shedding his own blood for it. I'm grateful for that. I, I'm inspired. I'm convicted by that. You know, if you want to be the leader of your household, serve, sacrifice, love in a way that only God can do through you. You want to prove to people that they should follow you? Live for Christ in a sacrificial way. You won't have to beg them to. You won't have to force them to. They will. <laughs> it's, it's attractive. It's, it's contrasting. You want to meet somebody that's going to be a good husband or spouse? Children, young ones, you want to meet a spouse that's going to be good for you? Find someone who will serve you, not someone who will lie and deceive and try to beg you. So Father, um, as we get ready to take communion, I thank you for your sacrifice and your love and your humility. You didn't force anybody to follow you. Even your disciples, you said, follow me. And then you taught them later, if anyone would follow after me, he must first deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. And you showed that perfectly in your example by laying down your rights, following the will of the Father. You laid down your own plans, even at the cross, before the cross. Lord, if there's any, Father, if there's any way for mankind to be saved, without me being brutally murdered, then let this cup pass from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done, Father. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to lay down our rights. Help us to recognize that true justice will only come when we are in line and subservient to you. And Father, would you pour out your Spirit upon us as we just look back on all that you have done as we ruminate and soak ourselves in the love that you have shown us and recognize that nobody else can fit that bill. Nobody else can show that kind of love. So, Father, as we worship and as uh, those here come up and uh, take communion and, and grab it and take it back to their seats, I pray you'd bless them, that there would be sweet fellowship, that there would be enlightenment, that you would help us to see the things that you want to expose so that we can be truly Set free. Help us to stop holding on to the things that are weighing us down. You died to set us free from them. And then at the same time, help us to remember what you are doing, to be thankful for the ways you're growing us. And at the same time, help us to look forward to going home. We thank you that your promise cannot be thwarted by anybody, anything, any circumstance, that your victory is sure. All we have to do is trust it and live for it. In Jesus' name, amen.